what I do now uh, is what I was taught by um, our illustrious um, previous leader, Dr. Baby, and various others. So I, I tunnel the epidural under the skin laterally five centimetres. Um, and that just stops it from moving, basically. I've, been, I've found that very successful. And so even if the dressings fall, fall off, it's still in. Welcome to episode 24 of the Obsangani Crick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this week, um, I once again have cornered Graham in his office. We're going to do another uh, discussion. Um, this week, I thought we'd try and have a practical discussion about um, some sort of practical tips to managing uh, the super morbidly obese woman. So, um, I think we're all pretty used to, or most people are pretty used to looking after people who have morbid obesity, but the super morbidly obese, which is, what's the definition, Graham? Well, the last time I read the definition, it varies from... Um region to region, but I think in Australia it's a body mass of 140 kilos or greater or a uh, BMI of 50 uh, kilograms per metre squared or greater. Yep, sounds good. So I thought maybe um, just to make it um, easy to um, direct our conversation, we'll have a hypothetical patient who's 200 kilos, which we definitely do get, and uh, she's pregnant and... um, uh, is uh, attempting a sort of vaginal delivery um, down in labour, but you know perhaps we we should, um, as as we know, they often end up in theatre. We'll, so we'll talk about managing them in theatre as well, and postoperatively all the issues around that. Mm. Um, Look, there sorry. are some good resources, just general yep. resources for managing obese patients, and one of my favourite is the Society for Obesity and Bariatric Anaesthesia in the UK, who put out a one-page um, PDF titled Anesthesia for the Obese Patient with a BMI greater than 35. And it covers pre-operative, intraoperative and post-operative considerations. Yep. And it's excellent generic information, which I uh, pass on to people who are uh, in the process of preparing for exams and training. Sure. And uh, so some of this is um, talking about um, anesthesia, but obviously a lot of these things are going to be really useful for people who, for example, um, nursing staff who have to look at, or midwifery staff who have to um, look after monitoring in, uh, you know, recovery or the post-operative wards or even down in labour wards, you know. Um, uh, and um, we might should we try and mention a few things relating to how, how to make things easier for the surgeons as well, although obviously um, that's not our area of expertise. Mm. I have noticed a few things that, um, that we use um, or have in our institution here, which seems to help. All right, so what are the comorbidities that um, super morbidly obese women can have? We're just going to mention them, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on them. So I want to really sort of keep this as a practical talk on the sort of solutions to problems. I mean, you can Uh, pretty much approach it from an ABC, DE approach. Uh, Potentially difficult airway, potentially difficult ventilation, risk of obstructive sleep, apnea. Yep risks of problems like gestational diabetes or diabetes type 2, yep. fatty liver disease, uh, ischemic heart disease, uh, hypertension, yeah. uh, risk of increased risk of preeclampsia, eclampsia, and then problems uh, like uh, high output cardiomyopathies. Yep. And obstetric conditions, so that, um, they are at high risk of um, having macrosomic babies, getting shoulder dystocia, and um, obstructed labours, needing emergency caesareans. They're very and difficult to monitor. Bleeding, yeah, that's exactly right. In, 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 in labour, and uh, sometimes very difficult to manage their PPHs just because of their yes. postpartum hemorrhage, just because of their 
body habitus. Yeah, I've definitely um, encountered that. And so very difficult to get lines into as well. Okay, so so basically from an anaesthetic point of view, we do definitely prefer to use a regional technique if they need to have an anaesthetic or some, some form of surgery because of all the risks of a general anaesthetic, you know, which become acutely problematic and uh, um, having trouble um, both securing their airway if they have a general anaesthetic and then even just ventilating someone, even if you have an intracranial tube, you know, ventilating someone who's 200 kilos is a real hassle and, um, and then getting them off a ventilator um, because there's so much weight on the chest and they have so many problems with their respiratory system. So we won't dwell on that for too long. Right, so let's talk about a few things. So monitoring uh, or securing vascular access in a patient. Uh, I've got a few things that I uh, like to keep up my sleeve, but um, do you have any um, things that you do differently in, um, or tips for listeners that you do for intravenous access, Graham? Uh, well, choosing a good uh, vein with a, a good diameter and a, a reasonable length. Yep. In particular, I like the cephalic vein in the forearm yep. of uh, morbidly obese women to cannulate an extra long cannula if I can place it, uh, and uh, taping it down so it won't come out. Yep, that's exactly right. And so I, I've, so my tip number one is basically use the ultrasound and try and find that cephalic vein in the middle of the forearm. So it's away from the back of the hand and away from the antecubital fossa, so it doesn't move that much when they're yeah, moving their arms around. Um, but, uh, and, uh, but it's often quite deep, so I think if you do have access to longer cannulas, that is a good, a good thing, because even just um, a little bit of movement of their skin, because they have so much adipose tissue, that translates into sometimes one or two centimetres of movement of the tip of the cannula, which is sometimes enough for it to slip out. So without a doubt, I, if I have someone who's 200 kilos, I always have at least two cannulas, because it's, it's um, in my mind anyway, so easy for one of them to tissue and the last thing you want is um, your cannula tissue at a crucial moment, so you definitely need to have two as well. Um, all right, let's move on. So what about measuring blood pressure? It's a real hassle, isn't it? Oh, a, a, a significant problem getting a cuff that's large enough to give accurate information yep. in these uh, big women. Yeah, so I think generally like some people who are overweight or um, morbidly obese but not super morbidly obese, like a large blood pressure cuff is available, and that does seem to work as long as they have the right sort of shaped upper arm. Uh, but once you're getting into the super morbidly obese range, there, there's so much um, extra adipose tissue in the upper arm. Those cuffs, they sort of, um, in my experience anyway, pinch and uh, just don't really get a reading. They struggle to, to, to find the oscillations or, or detect the oscillations that they need to, to, to give you a number. So the two solutions I have is sometimes just using a normal, for, um, a normal blood pressure, adult blood pressure cuff, maybe placing it on the, on the woman's forearm. And there's a little um, arrow symbol which says, um, you know, artery. If you place that over the um, the volar aspect of their arm, you know, where the the radial, the, where the radial and ulnar arteries run, mm-hmm. on that same, same side, and that works pretty well actually. Um, it's sometimes it slips down their arm because their arms are sort of tapered, so you can often find because it's not in the right shape, it keeps trying to slip off um, the hand. But if you can get that to work, that works really well. But most of the time, especially if they're 200 kilos, you really have to bite the bullet and put an arterial line in because it's critical that you know what this person's blood pressure is, especially if they're in theatre and having an anaesthetic of some sort. You yes, agree? I agree. I agree. The, um, I have a very low threshold for putting in an art line, an arterial yeah. line for um, morbidly obese patients. Yeah. So someone who's 200 kilos, I wouldn't blink twice. If they were having an anaesthetic in theatre, they they, it's compulsory. Mm. 
um, before we do anything. Uh, the next thing that we talk about is um, uh, manual stuff, so safe handling and positioning. So I personally feel really strongly about this because I've had some close um, colleagues and friends who have had some serious injuries from from patients where this has been a real issue. Um, so one of the things that we have to do because we try really hard to do a regional anaesthetic is that we obviously um, uh, usually have them sitting up curled up over uh, in some manner so we can try and do a neuraxial block uh, and I strongly feel that um, that this must be done in a safe way having, having been through um, uh, or experienced some adverse outcomes with a few close friends um, so we in our institution now have like um, professionally made positioning devices which I'm not sure who they're made by but I'll put some I'll actually put some photos of them in the um, show notes for this and these are I think if you're going to be looking after women this, who are this big, then you almost sort of, in my mind anyway, I personally think they should be compulsory. Um, I think you really need to, or definitely shouldn't be putting um, these women, shouldn't be having their legs placed on a stool or on like a partner or some, um, or husband or someone's um, legs. Um, because they're le because these women's legs weigh, you know, probably 50, 60 kilos, um, and if they lose motor strength in their leg, which um, often happens when you do in your axial block, then these things are just going to slide. Uh, their, their legs are going to slip off the um, stool or, or the or the knees of the partner, and um, the, the whole patient um, can end up just about uh, coming off the bed. And this is a really a real safety issue for for, the, for both the patient and all the staff caring for them. Yeah, I agree. Uh, for patients in labour, for patients for elective cesareans, the positioning device uh, is excellent. And I find it uh, helps position the patients uh, well for insertion of epidurals. Yep. Um, so if anyone, t uh, well, I guess from my, from my personal point of view, if there's one thing to take away from this, if you are listening and you are looking occasionally looking after someone who is that big, that, uh, that's my, the one thing I, um, I guess I'd like people to, to um, learn. Obviously um, we need people around the, that is other staff around the patient as the epidural uh, yep. is sighted in order to uh, then safely position the patient on the bed. Yep, so that's right. So even if you use this positioning device, you still need plenty of people mm. to move the patient both on and off that device uh, in theatre. So and that just means lots of people. You shouldn't be doing it uh, without uh, you know, plenty of people to share the load and, and doing it in a safe manner. Okay, uh, tips for, for placing, so you've got, we've got them positioned safely, what about tips for actually doing the epidural, so it's not an uh, epidural or spinal, it's not easy is it? No, it's not, and uh, <coughs> I think being careful when using a spinal uh, for morbidly obese patients, um, I'm a little reluctant to uh, place a high dose spinal for a caesarean for example, Again, for the reasons that as the patient's uh, sitting up, they can lose sensation, lose tone in their uh, lower limbs, which makes positioning difficult after a high-dose spinal is placed. Um, maybe it's a, a venous capacitance thing and a decreased venous return, but patients can become lightheaded, uh, hypotensive in those situations. And that's why an arterial line is um, really uh, useful. 
So I, I do I do think we should be doing a spinal when we're doing a cesarean f- uh, theatre, but definitely, uh, you know, sometimes in a normal weight uh, or normal body habitus, women in labour ward, we sometimes do spinal epidurals to get on uh, in control of their analgesia, but I would never do a... Um, or, uh, you know, I, I really would be very reluctant to do a spinal for analgesia in a 200-kilo woman down in labour ward because then I know that she's going to lose motor function in her legs and you really want her to be able to help you um, get herself back into bed and, yeah. and, and position herself. Exactly. I think uh, <coughs> lumbar spine uh, ultrasound is a yep. very useful technique uh, in order to reassure the yourself that the uh, level is appropriate. Yep. Uh, the centre of the um, or the midline is identified, and it also sometimes helps with respect to the direction the epidural needle needs to be um, uh, uh, passed, yep. Yep. as well as uh, the depth to the space. Although it can be misleading with um, the fact that often on the ultrasound probe you kind of pre- press in on the skin, and so. Um, the distance can be a little underestimated in those yeah. situations, and often when you're doing an, uh, when you're actually doing the um, uh, passing the needle in, you, you don't go straight in uh, perpendicular. You're on an angle, mm. and so yeah, I agree. The, the depth isn't probably the least helpful aspect of that. So I'm um, just relating that back to a patient I had the other night. So uh, she was about 180 kilos, and and uh, I now when I'm using the ultrasound, I actually put a sterile sheath on the ultrasound and, and do it at the do the ultrasound at the same time as I'm doing the block. So, so I used to do the ultrasound, draw on their back, and then um, then go away and scrub and try and do the epidural. But I find that um, that's nowhere near as useful because often the patient then moves around a bit and they're not positioned in exactly the same way. And, and that having the ultrasound there, going up and down their back, pick, detecting the midline, actually looking for the place where you can see through. So, you, so when there's a spinous process, obviously there's, you see the shadow. And then when you go just below or just above the spinous process, all of a sudden it's grey, just grey soft tissue, um, and you know, okay, that's that's the spot, that's where I can get through into the neuraxium. And I literally have the uh, local anaesthetic syringe in my left hand and the and the uh, um, ultrasound probe in the right hand, and I just swap them both over and go straight in. Mm. And I find that really useful. And uh, and often when they're really big, like you know, like um, the sort of woman we're describing. Sometimes they have a crease in their back in the in the midline, but um, I often find that's misleading because um, it's often when you look with the ultrasound, uh, either one one to the left or to the right is actually where you need to be. So, and, wh- and once you get that level of adiposity <coughs> between yeah. the uh, bony structures and the skin, and the yeah. skin, the the, the, the um, relationship is gone. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's right. So the fur just not not seated in an appropriate, a, a completely perpendicular manner, then the skin has moved uh, one way to to the left or right and it's very misleading if you try and rely on that. Back in the good old days before I tried to use ultrasound you know I would try and rely on um, looking at the skin, eyeballing things, asking the patient if what their proprioception was telling them and I can honestly say I don't think in these sort of you know 200 kilo type patients that, um, that it's just it's really it's nowhere near as good as using ultrasound and actually seeing uh, where things are. Alright so and obviously we didn't mention this so uh, the long tui needle uh, that's 11 centimetres, um, so I would just start with that from the start in someone this big. 
Um, if you want to do a, so if, if say for example you're in theatre and you're going to do a caesarean and you want to do a spinal through that, you have to have the appropriately long spinal needle. There's not very many spinal needles that are long enough to go through an 11 centimetre two needle. Um, so you've got to make sure you've got all this kit available before you start looking after them. Um, so let's, uh, for the sake of argument, we've done the block now, it's worked. We've got the, uh, we're putting the catheter in. How far into the space do you leave the catheter? I, 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 leave, I leave at least five centimetres catheter in the space. Yep. I usually aim for six. I go for more If than possible, that. yep. Yeah. Um, and I also uh, try to um, ensure the catheter doesn't migrate out by getting the patient to do some dynamic movements after I've uh, put the epidural into the uh, catheter into the um, space that five to six centimetres, getting the patient to to actually um, lean back, provide com, you know a, a con, um, cavity to her lumbar spine. Yeah, so sit up and lean back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and often when they do that, the catheter actually goes in like two to three centimetres. So if you've already um, clicked the locket or you know. Um, uh, you know, uh, um, fixed, fixated the, the catheter to the skin. Mm-hmm. That will just basically pull the catheter out of the epidural space by three centimeters. So that's that's uh, then you know you've gone to all that effort to get it in, and you pulled it out before you've even fixed it to the skin. Yeah. I mean, another technique <coughs> that I know you do, Roger, is tunneling the yep. epidural. So now I do that uh, routinely down in labor ward. So I go down and if I've got someone who's this big in labor ward. Uh, and spend this amount of time trying to get the epidural in, I just don't want it to come out. So often while my uh, observation is that they, um, they, the dressings, doesn't matter what sort of dressing you put on, they, um, if, the, if they're on for, very, for more than a couple of hours, they get very sweaty and, they, and it doesn't matter if it's um, Fixamol or uh, Tegaderm or any of them, they all sort of start to peel off. And if you just, uh, leave, you know, just put the catheter in six or seven centimetres and then stick the dressing on, then as, if the, the dressing comes off and starts peeling off, it just pulls the catheter out and before you know it, you've, you've lost your epidural, which is very frustrating. So, um, and that just stops it from moving, basically. I've, been, I've found that very successful. And so even if the dressings fall, fall off, it's still in, and then um, uh, uh, you can you know, use it uh, f- when they come to theatre for their emergency procedure, which the huge majority of them do. Um, especially if they're nulliparous. Um, so, the way, so the way I tunnel it, should I try and really briefly well, explain how to do that? I'd be, would be, one day I should try and do a video and um, yeah. show up, but um, that, that's difficult because you'd have to... Um, I don't do it very often in the theatre anymore, but... I'm pretty sure Dr Pavey wrote it up in an article in yeah, 1994. We'll, we'll, we'll have a look and see him do it. So we used to tunnel all our thoracic... Well, not all of them, but we used to try and tunnel our thoracic epidurals and to try and keep them in for three or four days, and that worked really well. But we don't really use thoracic epidurals for laparotomies now, so I only ever really tunnel an epidural down the labor ward now from these and these sorts of patients. So basically what you do is once you've threaded the catheter to the depth that you wanted in the epidural space, you pull the two-e needle back maybe three or four centimetres out of the epidural space, but leave it in the leave it in the back, so to speak, covering the catheter. And then uh, you make a little cut, a little vertical incision, um, I just use the sharp blade at the end of a 16-gauge cannula, but if you're in theatre, you can use a, um, a scalpel. And then you tunnel, uh, put some local anaesthetic about five centimetres laterally, and then tunnel a um, intravenous cannula across through that, poke the tip of the intravenous cannula out that little hole that you've made beside the two-e needle. Pull the, um, the, the needle, the sharp uh, needle out of the ca- cannula and just leave the plastic cannula there. 
and then uh, pull the two needle out and thread the. So now all we've got is a catheter sticking out of someone's back, and you just thread that catheter back through the uh, the IV cannula and then pull it across, and it pops out of the skin five centimeters to the right hand side of where you um, place your epidural, and voila, it's tunneled five centimeters under the skin. That just provides all that extra friction, so that if someone puts some extra uh, strain or pull on the on the catheter, it doesn't really move because uh, it's uh, held in place by five centimetres of um, friction by the skin. Mm. It's supposed to protect against infection too, but to be honest, you probably don't want to leave these catheters in for three or four days. So oh, it's more just to prevent it from being pulled out. Okay, I think we've blathered on about that long enough. What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. That was um, well described. So the other thing that we've seen done before, um, which I have done a few times, is using two epidurals. Um, so, so occasionally we've had the really um, super morbidly obese woman um, with our surgeons have decided to do a midline incision to, to, to do the caesarean uh, and obviously this sort of surgery can go on for a long time uh, and even made a, they've even I've seen them even do um, incisions in the fundus of the uterus just because the, the woman's panis is so large that trying to do a traditional fan and steel incision is just not feasible mm. or is incredibly difficult mm. and so instead just making like a midline uh, laparotomy incision sort of around the level at the level of the umbilicus and then an incision through the fundus of the uterus and delivering the babies out that, uh, that way um, or even if they do do a fan steel incision what you can do is like a two epidural technique which um, is basically a low thoracic epidural and then do a lumbar CSE you can either do a lumbar CSE or a lumbar spinal uh, and then the thoracic epidural obviously is very useful for um uh, provide you know providing ongoing analgesia if the uh, surgery takes a long time and this way you can try and avoid having to intubate and ventilate a 200 kilo person mm. um, or you could do well, I guess the other thing uh, which I have I haven't had much experience with but there's some people in the US um, say you know we should be putting intrathecal catheters in these patients um, but um, I haven't had much experience of doing that here I always think that the risk of the intrathecal catheter falling out is probably similar to that of an epidural uh, but but you could do that as well. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, that's an option. And what would you put it in at uh, T nine, T ten, and L three or four? Or uh, these are the two epidural yeah, catheter exactly. techniques. Yeah, that's mm. pretty much what I've done. Uh, I had a two hundred and twenty kilo woman last year, um, where we did the two epidural technique, and then as we lay her down, the uh, lumbar one just basically got pulled out because her skin is—it's hard to describe—but the skin actually folded back on itself, so the two lockets were actually touching each other. Was unbelievable, but the, luckily the thoracic epidural was in, and uh, we topped that up, and we we're all good to go. It seemed to work, but it was pretty hairy, I must admit. Sometimes it doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't get a regional to work. Yeah. Um, but in this case, we did. Where did we? Or where we got up to? We've got a few notes here that we're following. Um, so, what about? Um, so sometimes you can't avoid doing a general anaesthetic, and if you do, uh, um. If you do end up having a patient who's intubated and you need to uh, transport them either through your hospital to the ICU or um, uh, as in our case we're unlucky enough we have to, you have to get an ambulance to transport them to an ICU at another facility. Uh, any tips or tricks, Graham? Uh, I mean the first thing is uh, it can happen even when you have a uh, perfectly located epidural yep. that needs topping up for a caesarean. I know that from experience. Uh, in terms of ventilation, make sure that there is um, a generous peep yep. early on, um, but don't be surprised if the patient has type 1 respiratory failure 
and or type 2 respiratory failure. So just remind me, so type 1 is hypoxic or, that's correct. Uh, and type 2 is hypercapnic? Yeah. That's correct. I hate 1 and 2 because I can't remember. I'm, oh, a sim- I'm a simple man. Yeah, okay. <laughs> hypoxic or hypercapnic <laughs> or both. respiratory failure or both. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think be very, very careful with the opioids that yep. you choose. Uh, long-acting opioids may... Yeah, dangerous. May, are going to be dangerous. They're going to make the job of extubation and ventilation at the end of the caesarean, the GA caesarean uh, challenge. Yep. Um, and, uh, but the patients may need a slow respiratory wean in yep. an ICU That's and right. so you've got be to make, prepared for that. Yeah, so you've got to be brave. I know we have had some patients who have been well over 200 kilos who have actually had GA caesars and been extubated and we just put them in our HDU. Um, but sometimes, you know, it's an individual decision, but sometimes you might be a bit sort of nervous about that and you want them to be slowly weaned off a ventilator in an ICU setting, which I think is a very, very sensible option. Um, because what last thing you want to do is um, pull the tube on someone this big and then discover that you've got to suddenly try and, uh, you know... Go, uh, go back on your plan and reintubate them, uh, if, or if they have trouble breathing in recovery or something like that, you know, it can get a bit dicey. So, uh, the other thing is, so we're certainly here in Western Australia, there's only one ambulance that can transport people over about 180 kilos. Mm. So, that uh, we've had, to, I remember on a few occasions now, we've had to wait you know, an hour or two um, until that becomes available. Um, and make sure you've got a ventilator that can. can uh, deliver PEEP. We used to have this old Oxylog and, and if we wanted to give PEEP we actually just had to have screw this little valve. connector valve thing in yeah. and it gave five centimetres of PEEP. Luckily now we have a Hamilton ventilator which is like a basically a very good yeah. ventilator and you can you can dial up whatever PEEP you want. So yeah, if you uh, are going to be transporting these sorts of patients over any distance you need some uh, good vent- transport ventilator. Um, opioids, I've got a couple of comments about the opioids. Yeah, I agree. Try and make your uh, post-op analgesia uh, based on regional techniques because yeah, opioids are just going to make them uh, hypercarbic and they're going to uh, get exacerbate their OSA and they're going to get um, respiratory failure and then they're not going to be able to breathe properly. Uh, lignocaine infusion, if you can't, if your regional's failed, lignocaine, intravenous lignocaine infusions are good analgesics and they don't um, inhibit respiration anywhere near as much as um, new opioid agonists, so that's, that's a good thing to use. I think we should probably get near, we've probably gone on for too long now. We should probably wind it up. Any final comments, Graham? No, no. I, um... Has anyone out there who's listening got, I'm sure there's lots of people out there who uh, got lots of experience um, managing super morbidly obese patients as well. I'm sure you, over the years they've um, learned tips or tricks that would be really um, interesting for both Graham and I and uh, anyone else who's listening. So, um, it is good when we get some comments. We do occasionally get people comment, so it does... It is, um, uh, what's the word? It's nice to know that someone's listening. Sometimes I wonder, but uh, uh, when we get a comment or something, it's really good. Um, so if you've got any comments, questions, um, please um, uh, drop us a line. That'd be, that'd be great. great. Okay. Thanks, Thanks, Roger. Thanks, Graham. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguinecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.